Welcome to the Garage Podcast, presented to you by the Young Adults Group at Salem First Baptist Church. Thanks for tuning in to hear this week's message from Pastor Tyler Hankey. So we're going to launch into a new series today, and the series is called Limited. As I prayed, there's a number of different times in your life where God is going to limit you. He's going to limit your body. He's going to limit your mind. He's going to limit your friends. He's going to limit your marriage. He's going to limit you in a number of different areas. And if you and I don't learn how to respond to God's no, we are going to get hurt. We're going to get angry. We're going to get disenchanted with church. We might even leave because when we don't get our way, we don't always respond well. When you look at our culture too, you need to understand You are coming from a culture, specifically in America, that desperately loves our independence. We love to do whatever we want to do, when we want to do it, as long as it doesn't hurt someone. That is the mantra of our country. And if, as a believer, if you're not careful, you will begin to adopt that into your life. And I'm telling you, there's very few things more lethal to your faith than I want what I want all the time. I mean, that's the essence of pride. When you look at our culture, you can clearly see that we absolutely hate limits, my friends. There are 42 million speeding violations in the U.S. every year. And those are just the ones that are caught. And I know some of you sped on the way to church. I'm looking at, yeah, I'm looking at you. There are 42 million speeding violations every year. We hate limits. On a more sad note, there are 750,000 divorces every year. And those are due largely to abuse or infidelity. 750,000 divorces. There's a group of people called the 2045 Initiative, and their goal is to digitize the human consciousness so that we never die. We hate limits so much that there is an organization dedicated to digitizing your brain so that you live forever. We don't even like the limits of time and death. We hate it. And as I was thinking about why we desperately hate limits, here's largely what I think it is. All of us, even non-believers, are made in the image of God. So as he is creative, we are creative. As he is relational, we long to be relational. But here's the problem. We don't just want to look like God. We want to be God. When sin jumps into your life, you as an image bearer, twist that longing to be like God and you want to be God. John Mark Comer said it this way. We live in a culture that wants to transgress all limitations, not accept them to cheat time and space, not to be like God, but to be God. In your culture, we commonly say things like YOLO, which I have no problem with. You only live once is fine. I get the principle. Usually it's said in a moment where you want to overcome a fear, which is fine, but think about the term. YOLO assumes that there is a limitation to the amount of time that you have on this life to do things, and then that morphs into another fear, Or another phrase, excuse me, which is FOMO, fear of missing out. That entire phrase is birthed out of the idea that you don't want to miss out because you've got limited time and resources, so you might as well go do the thing you want to do. But my friends, when that fear takes root, that's one of the dominant reasons why the average marrying age of men in this country in the last 10 years went from early 20s to latter 20s, early 30s. Because there's a deep fear in men, ladies, and you need to hear this, there's a deep fear in men that they might pick the wrong woman because if I'm gonna pick this woman and be linked to her forever, that's a scary thing. And that fear overtakes young men and then they just choose not to get married because they're like, I don't wanna screw this up, so I'm just not gonna do it. So when this fear takes root, whether it's your marriage, your friendships, your life, your job, anything, this can destroy you. So we need to look at this idea of limitations 
and figure out what we're gonna do with this, Comer also said this. He said, what if the limitations on me aren't something to fight but gratefully accept as a signpost to God's call on our souls? Peter Scazzaro, author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, says this, which also, by the way, is a book I highly recommend. He says, we find God's will for our life in our limitations. So, friends, for the next seven weeks, we are looking at seven different things that God either puts on you as a limit or asks you to limit yourself so that you might be a healthier individual. We're going over your friends, leaders, sex, time, weak Christians, family, and your abilities and influence. All of these in some way are limited by God on you or God says limit it yourself that you might be healthy. So we're just gonna jump right to it. Today, we're gonna go over your friends. We're gonna talk about relationships and how you need to limit them or how your poor choices are limiting you based on who you decided to hang out with. Some of you that have been in the word a number of years, you might know exactly where I'm going. We're going to Proverbs 13 to begin our time together, Proverbs 13, 20, and it says this, starting in, in verse 20. Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. Let's break this up. You are introduced to two ideas. Number one, if you walk with wise people, inevitably you are going to become wise. Second thing you're introduced to, if you walk with or are companions with fools, meaning morally corrupt individuals, you will suffer harm. Friends, you're gonna get sick with one of two things. Both of these are incredibly contagious. Wise people, very contagious. And fools, unbelievably contagious. You're gonna get sick with one of them. Here's the good news. You get to pick the pathogen. You get to pick what you get sick with. Are you gonna put yourself with wise people or fools? Now, in order to understand this text, we're gonna jump around through scripture, but we gotta play this out. Like, some of you that have been Christians for a long time, I, I love, some of you, you read this, you're like, I believe it, I'm gonna adopt this as a lifestyle, and that's great. Others of you that are more skeptical, you're like, is that true? Is it true that if I walk with wise people, I'm gonna get wise? And is it true that if I walk with fools, I'm gonna get hurt? Let's play it out. If you were to look at a wise person and let's define what that means, I'm gonna use scripture's definition. Wisdom is fear of God. Wisdom, meaning the right use of knowledge, is fear of God. Proverbs 9 says that the fear of God is the beginning of or source of all wisdom. Why does this make sense? Because if I believe that God is real and that he's watching me, that is inevitably going to change how I behave. So think about God, and I want you to walk back through God's choices with human beings. It was God that looked at individuals mocking the tabernacle and he lit them on fire. It was God that said, don't touch my ark unless I give you permission, and some dude touched it and God killed him instantly. It was God that said, I'm gonna give you a way to live with your sexuality and if you mess with this, I'm, you're going to get punished. And then an entire city was burned to the ground for that reason. It was God that said, I'm going to have you treat each other a certain way. Should you get violent, I will then punish you. And God did. He flooded the entire planet. Don't simply say that God is a God of love. God is a God of wrath and judgment. And if I behave in a way that disregards that, I am by definition a fool and I'm gonna get hurt. And if you surround yourself with people that, that reject God as a reality, 
you are going to get hurt. Because if they're not careful with their life, why will they ever be careful with yours? If I surround myself with people that are afraid of God, I'm going to start making different decisions. If I surround myself with people that say in their heart, God's not real, you are going to get hurt. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is the belief that God is real, that God has standards and God is coming back again. See, I'm gonna say something that sounds a little controversial, but it's really not. Don't obey this simply because it's in the Bible. Obey this because the one that said it is coming back to judge you. See, I don't treat you well just because. I treat you well because you are sons and daughters of the most powerful being in the universe. And should I mistreat you, there's consequences. There are individuals out there that would hurt my children, right? And, and if you guys have kids, there are individuals that will hurt your children. Very few of those evil individuals will hurt your children in front of you. That's a deranged person. Most people, if they're gonna try to hurt your kid, they'll do it when you're not looking. So when me and you mistreat each other, we are mistreating sons and daughters of God who's right here, like looking at you. There's a reason I don't sleep with another woman and it's not because I don't want to. My sinful flesh says, hey, that woman's attractive. You should go sleep with her. Here's why you don't. Because God is watching the whole time. And he goes, if you wanna mistreat my daughter that way, I might let you get away with it for a second, but I'm watching and I promise you I'm going to bring harm to you for the way that you've brought harm to somebody else. Why do we obey anything? Because the one that gave this command says I'm coming back. I'm coming back and I'm gonna make everything right. My obedience is in large part due to my fear of the one that gave the command. So when I start looking at this, wisdom does some things to me. Wisdom causes me First, to stop. Wisdom, if it begins with fear of the Lord, if, if I know that God is watching, then, then what I'm going to do in my life is I'm first gonna stop. Is what I'm doing bringing harm to me or someone close to me? Wisdom is always gonna cause you to stop. Okay, you have to remember, God is watching the whole time. You get away with nothing. You and me get away with absolutely nothing. The second thing that it causes you to do is challenge yourself. I'm first gonna stop and I'm gonna analyze what I'm doing and what God wants me to do. And there's the challenge. Do I wanna obey or do I wanna disobey? And you are offered that challenge every single day in various ways. Whatever the, the command is, whether it's about relationships with people, your friends, whether it's about your sexuality, whether it's about your money, whether it's about your job, how you're gonna treat your boss, you are offered this moment to obey all day, every day. And wisdom says, first, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna challenge myself to do the right thing. And then I need to make a choice. Every single day, you can stop, you can challenge, and you can choose what is right or what is wrong. And that is the essence of wisdom. Wisdom gives you this opportunity to stop yourself. Now, oh, can't go there. I went too far. So here's what we're gonna do. What I wanted to do to to begin to end our time is I wanna look at what a good friend is. Because some of you, God got you up this morning because you are surrounding yourself with individuals that don't fear God, okay? That's why you got up, that's why God got you here. You've got friends, they're not healthy, they don't love the Lord, they don't have any desire to follow the Lord. And if you were honest with yourself, you realize I'm allowing them to affect me more than I'm affecting them. I was hanging out with some individuals at H2O last year and a girl comes up and she goes, because I said something similar to this, and she goes, 
So I've got some individuals that aren't Christians. Does that mean that I can't be friends with them? And I was like, well, hold on. Let's define friend for a second. Because can you be acquaintances with them? Sure, absolutely. But can you be life-sharing friends? I would argue, no, you can't. And she's like, does that mean that I never hang out with them? And I was like, no, that's not what I'm saying. And so I turned it back on her and I was like, when you're hanging out, who influences more? Do you influence her more or does she influence you more? And she goes, she influences me more. So don't, don't get mad at me, don't get mad at the text. You ask yourself, when you hang out with your non-Christian friends, are you a better man? Are you a better woman? Or do they influence you to the point where you're starting to make bad choices and you're like, well, I know I'm saved and I'm forgiven. That's not the point, friends. The point is who's influencing who? Are you becoming a better man, a better woman, or are they influencing you for the negative? They're not afraid of God. This is oil and water. I'm not saying that you can't meet with them. I'm not saying you can't go out to coffee. I'm not saying you can't go out to a movie. If we were never in relationship with non-Christians, it'd be fairly difficult to see people saved. But life sharing friendship, can you do that with a non-believer? I would argue no, you can't. Because they're never gonna want the same things you do. They don't want your marriage, or they, they don't care about your marriage the way that you do. They don't care about your body the way that you do. They don't care about your future the way that you do and God does. So some of you, I love you, you gotta make better choices with your friends. But for the rest of us, I want you to be the greatest friends possible. So what I wanna look at for the remainder of the time is what is a good friend? What is a good friend? We're gonna jump into a number of different texts and we're gonna move fairly quickly, so I apologize, but here's the first one. The first one is Ecclesiastes chapter four. I discovered this when we did our last series and it really struck me as Solomon, his basic point is that having friends is better than not having friends, which is kind of like, duh. But then he describes what a good friend is. And you and me need to understand this so that we pick good friends and so that we are good friends. Here's the first thing, or here's what he says, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other one up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Here's what I need you to analyze in that text. It's not our friends better than not having friends. We, that one's a given. What type, or what type of activities were these friends doing? What should you expect in your relationships with other people in the church, your, your real friends? Here's the first thing that they were doing. They're working. These friends are working together. He goes, two are better than one. They have a good return on their labor. Your best friends are the ones that you are shoulder to shoulder with advancing God's kingdom or advancing your job, whatever it is. Good friends are working together. Every single one of my groomsmen, every single one I did ministry with in some way. One of my guys, Noah, He's from Colorado. Me and him did Fellowship of Christian Athletes in high school together. My other buddy, James, he's from Colorado. Me and him did Bible study in high school and in college together, leading it, not just attending. And then I had another guy, Mike, Michael McCookie. Me and him, we led the young adult group in Colorado together. So I did Bible studies and teaching and he did worship. Nolan Fridley was another one of my groomsmen. Me and him led this young adult group together before he went off and did his thing and I took over full time. David Balmer, we did Bible study together. I could keep going. There was my brothers too. We did ministry together. 
So when you think about who your best friends are, are you doing anything with them? Are you doing ministry together? Are you working together? Because he goes, you wanna know what a real friend is? Someone working with you. Here's, here's another thing that they were doing. They were falling. They were tripping. Every single one of you, and I guarantee you, you've already felt this in your life. You're going at a certain pace and you're loving the journey and then suddenly something happens. It's a breakup. It's the loss of a job. It's a move. It's um, a significant trauma in your family life. Whatever it is, every single one of you is gonna get hurt. A real friend is there with his or her hand picking you off the ground again. A real friend is needy. This is my first point here. A real friend is needy. Some of you try to base all of your friendships on who is most fun to hang out with and who is easiest to hang out with. You're like, well, they're my friends because we have the same interests. I don't care. That doesn't matter. I would argue some of your best friends are the ones that don't like the things that you like and they're there anyway. Some of you are basing all of your deep friendships based on what is easiest and that's not a real friend. Now, if you enjoy hanging out with someone, God bless you, that's fine, I don't care. A real friend is there when you fall. Here's the next thing that they were doing. It says that they were keeping warm and I would equate this to, to someone that's coming into hard times. Now, in America, it's very difficult to bring this one to bear because if you're cold, you just go get a blanket or you turn the heat up. But real friends, imagine being in a place where the power is routinely going out, somewhere like Ukraine right now. Imagine being somewhere where you don't have the money to turn the heat on. Imagine somewhere where your house has a hole in it because a tank shot it. And you're like, I, I, we need to keep warm tonight. I have no blankets. I don't have, I don't have heat. What do you wish you had in that moment? Another human being to keep warm with. And his point is you can't do that by yourself. When life gets really scary and hard and it's cold outside, you, you, don't, you don't necessarily want a blanket. You want a friend. Someone that'll pull you in when life gets really, really hard. And here's the last thing, and this is my favorite. They're fighting evil. He says, one person, it's fairly difficult to defend yourself. Two people, you're lasting through that fight. It's interesting to me how many of us think that we need to shoulder the burden of being single through your young adult years or, or handling the beginnings of marriage or handling children or handling new jobs and we think we need to do this by ourselves because that's some measure of stick to No. Friends, you're gonna get attacked. Especially when you start getting older and you've got more responsibility, you get married, gentlemen, you're a target. You are a target for the enemy because God's created this new unit and Satan's like, sweet, I'm gonna give you some charming woman and she's gonna wreck you. You get married, you're a target. You get kids, you're a target. You're a single individual in the church. Kate, you are, I tell singles this all the time. You are the most usable, the most mobile that you're ever gonna be in the church. And Satan's like, let me wreck you before you get running and really do some damage against the kingdom of evil. You don't do this life by yourself. You don't be single by yourself because there's so many different temptations that can wreck you before you even start dating or get married. There's so many things that can wreck you by like when the enemy gets in there and goes, hey, you're not married yet. You don't have kids, you're worthless. There's no part for you in the church. Says who? 
You are at your most usable, most mobile as a single individual in the church. So instead of having a pity party and saying, well, I'm not dating, I'm not married, stop doing that. Just get a good friend and say, we're gonna go shoulder a ministry and just assault Salem for the kingdom of God. You do not survive by yourself. You join Bible studies, you get a best friend and you start pushing hard. A good friend is needy. Now, some of you, some of you need to hear that almost in the sense of it's okay to be needy. It's okay. See, some of you wanna make sure that everything's fine and then you'll go be a friend. It's like, no, it's okay to say you don't have everything together right now. Life is a mess and you really need a friend. That's okay. You're not a bad friend if you're needy. According to this list, good friends are very, very needy. Here's another one. Proverbs 27, starting in verse five. Better is an open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Do you wanna know if you have a good friend? Let me tell you if you have a best friend. Here's the test. Have you been corrected by them? That's it. Not did you have a good time together, not did you go on a trip together, not have you had a lot of fun together, that doesn't matter. Have you had someone who was so brave that they said, you know what, I see this in your life and that's not okay, you need to stop. You've got a bad attitude towards your job, you got a bad attitude towards your boss, you got a bad attitude towards your singleness, you got a bad attitude towards something and I love you too much to let you keep going in this. This is not what God wants for you. Do you wanna know if you got a best friend? It's someone that can correct you to your face. Do you wanna know when you are a good friend? It's when you see all the red flags in your friend's life and you say, you know what, I I gotta say something. And you don't say it in public, you take them out to coffee because you genuinely want them to be better. This is not let me shame you because I noticed a bad thing. This is I see something in you and I love you so much, I wanna see you get better. Spurgeon says this, true friends put enough trust in you to tell you openly of your faults. Give me, a friend, give me for a friend the man who will speak honestly of me before my face who will not tell first one neighbor and then another, but who will come straight to my house and say, sir, I feel there is such and such a thing in you, which as my brother, I have to tell you. That man is a true friend. He has proved himself to be so. For we never get any praise for telling people of their faults. Rather, we run the risk of their dislike. A man will sometimes thank you for it, but he does not often like you any better. I was driving home from, I was working at FedEx doing graveyards and nothing good happens after midnight, even your job, it's just terrible, graveyard sucks. But we were doing, we were, me and my buddy James, one of my groomsmen, we were moving packages together and we get back in the car at 7 a.m., we're going home and I, we had a boss and he was, he was a good dude, he was just fairly unorganized and all he would do all shift long is just yell at you. And I had just had it and I was just throwing a fit. And And the fit was lasting quite a long time. Our trip home was about 30 minutes. And so he pulls the car over on the highway, like slams on the brakes, rips the car to the side of the road. And he was like, Tyler, I am so tired of you nagging about our boss. He's like, either man up or shut up because it does us no good for you to whine all the way home. And I was like, dang, And so he pulls the car back onto the road and we were silent for the rest of the trip home. But I told him later, you stopped me 
from becoming a whiny baby. Like, and that's okay for you to do with your friend. You go, friend, I love you, stop. It does you no good at all to complain about your job or your boss, stop. That does you no good. Either become the type of man or woman that can turn that around and, and endure it, like start being the type of person that prays, not that your boss would die, but that you would become a better human being, that you would become more emotionally strong. It does you no good to whine about them. Be the kind of friend that says, I love you. I'll let you vent, sure, that's fine, but stop. There's a line. Be that kind of friend. And here's, here's the last one. There's a, a pastor named Drew Hunter. He's in Indiana, and he wrote this about friendship. He goes, friendship points to the ultimate end of our existence. God doesn't just forgive us through Christ. He befriends us. This is John 15, starting in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. He continues his quote. He says, he saves us to glorify him by enjoying fellowship with him forever. We, me and you as Christians, are headed towards an eternal world of friendship with God and with all those that he befriended through Jesus. Our future eternity is nothing but good friends, good food, good fellowship with God forever. When you look at the cross, the cross was the single greatest moment in human history, period. And if you were to define it and put it in a category, what the cross was, was a beautiful cosmic act of friendship. That's what it was. Jesus was like, my friends are dying and they're going to hell and the only way I make sure I'm friends with them forever is I go die. So when you start looking at your friends, here's another thing that I want you to ask yourself. Where in the last year have I sacrificed for them to let them know I love you, you have value, and I'm in this with you no matter what? Where are you losing money? Where are you losing money for your friends? They need to be an investment. Where are you taking people out just to hang out. You're like, you know what? I'm gonna take you out to dinner. They're like, friend, this is kind of weird. You're like, I know, but I just wanna let you know I love you. Where are you saying, you know what? I saw what happened to you this past week, this past month. I know how much you make. I know where you're working. I know you don't have enough here. Our friends need to be invested in. Where are you losing time? Where are you losing money? Where in the last year has someone been like, I'm hurting and you're like, done, it, it's over. I'm at your house. I'm showing up. My father, when we were growing up, there was a guy that he went to college with, and he went to college here in Oregon, my dad did, and then he moved to Colorado, and his buddy calls him and goes, Mark, I messed my life up. Like, I, I have done something horrible. Dad didn't even respond with talking about the horrible moment. He goes, so when are you gonna get here? And he was like, what? He's like, I have an extra room. When are you going to get here? And so his friend packed up what literally had, and he moved to Colorado, and he lived with us for years while he built his life back up. Where are we preparing our lives to receive a friend to say, I don't care what you did, you come back here, you're gonna heal and you're gonna do it in my house. Real friends are ready to sacrifice that their friends might be bettered. So when you look at your life, don't look at your friends, look at you. Needy, faithfully wounding, sacrificing. Where are you doing this for your friends? Don't try to find someone that has no needs. That's not a friend. You wanna know who your friends are? It's who shows up on moving day. 
When you have need, look at the last time you corrected someone. I mean, I love all you guys, but if you've got a friend that you've never corrected, either they're sinless, and I know that's not true, or you're not doing what you need to do as a friend. Think about that. Your friend's not sinless. I know you're not sinless. So are we living lives so distant from other human beings that they're never gonna discover our faults? We're like, okay, right before we get close, I'm gonna move. Right before we get any level of depth, I'm gonna change churches. Right before anyone discovers that I messed up in my past, we're moving. I tell people a general rule, and I'm not saying this to selfishly try to keep you in this group, but here's my rule. My general rule, there's some exceptions, but not really. Only move churches when everything is going well. If something's not going well, that's when you need to press in. Yeah, but there's a lot of relational tension here. I know, push through it. Otherwise, you're never gonna grow. You're never gonna mature. If we're always running to find someone who's not needy, that's not a friend, that's an acquaintance. Find someone who's faithfully gonna wound you to your face and be ready to sacrifice because that's what real friends do. My friends, one of your greatest limitations in this life is gonna be your friends. And here's the thing, you choose them. This is a type of limitation that I don't believe God puts on you. He gives you the choice. Who you decide to hang out with is either going to be one of the greatest limiters on who you can become or it will be one of the greatest advancers of who you can become. Wise people, they're contagious. They make wise friendship decisions. They make wise money choices. They make wise dating relationship choices. That's contagious. Find friends like that. And if you're not a healthy friend, maybe God brought you to church this morning because you're like, I'm none of those things and I need to change and that's okay. You can always become a better friend. Do you wanna be great? Pick great friends. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this group of people. Thank you for all the new friendships that you've made in this church in the past year and all the new friendships that you're going to make. I pray that in this young adult group, we would be marked by deep relational connection. I pray, God, for opportunities to meet needs. And that's gonna be hard because that's gonna mean some pain. It's gonna mean relational pain, financial pain, but I pray that they would be present, that we, would, that we might discover what kind of people we are. Would, are we people that meet needs? I pray that we would be. And God, I pray for faithful wounding. I pray for those moments in the car like I had with James that people here would be brave enough to look their friend in the face and say, I love you, stop. And God, would we be ready to sacrifice? And so in that, I pray that the individuals in this room would have great jobs. I pray that they would make great paychecks. And I pray that they would dump their money out on their friends and on the people of this city, that we might see people healed, that we might see people get back on their feet after falling. And I pray that we would defend each other fiercely from all the different attacks we're gonna get. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Garage Podcast. We hope the message has made you think deeper about faith and will strike up new conversations as you go about your week. If you want to hear more messages like this, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Have a great week.